how many of you at one point in your life were single and then you got married? New normal, right? You had to create this new normal. You had to adjust to a new normal. Um, how many of you um, have, uh, have had a child? New normal, right? Like you had a life and then something happened and now new normal. Got to figure this out. There, and those are positive things, but we've all experienced negative things too. Like, like if you've lost a job or had to change jobs, you had to figure out your new normal. If someone you love died, you had to figure out a new normal. Life is full of opportunities for you and for me to learn the new normal. Life is full of opportunities for all of us who are, who are human beings. It's full of opportunities for us to either create or adjust to a change that we're going to call a new normal. I want to talk to you today about how to build a new normal because God's people, if you look at the scriptures, God's people spent a lot of time trying to figure out over and over and over throughout the centuries, the people who have followed God have had to figure out new normals, a new way of life, uh, a new way to do things because things have changed or because there was a crisis. And for me, um, as you look at the scriptures, there are several blueprints. If you're paying attention, there are blueprints that you can use to build your new normal, whether that's the new normal after all of this craziness is over or whether that's the new normal in your family or whether it's the new normal in your life, the scripture is full of blueprints that you can use to build your new normal. And for me, maybe the most powerful, because I think it's the most simple, I'm a simple person, the, the most powerful for me is the blueprint that you can find in the book of Ezra. The book of Ezra. Excuse me. Ezra was a priest he was a scribe, he was a leader, and um, you really have to, to get Ezra's story to figure out who he is and to understand the events that surrounded his life. You have to go back about 48 years earlier than when the events of the book Ezra take place. Okay, so we're going to go back about 48 years, exactly 48 years, to the year 586 B.C. Anybody alive then? Just me? 586 B.C., huge date on the world calendar. Um, king Nebuchadnezzar II becomes the, the king of the Babylonian Empire, and he is power-crazed. And he basically takes over the whole world, the whole known world at the time. The whole Fertile Crescent belonged to him. And in 586 B.C., he marches from Babylon down into um, the area of Judah where the Hebrews lived, and he lays siege to the city of Jerusalem, the capital city. And in 586, he manages to knock the wall down, he knocks the temple down, and he destroys Israel. He destroys the Hebrew people. And he's brilliant in the way he conquers the world. He has kind of taken the, the lead from several other empires that have come before him. And what he does is, when he conquers your nation, he goes into the capital city, he goes into the big cities, he goes into all the cities in your nation, and he identifies the strongest, the wealthiest, all the leaders, all the skilled laborers, all the workers, um, all the healthiest people. He identifies all those kind of people. He rounds them up with their families and he moves them 
3,000 miles to the north to live in his capital city in Babylon so that he can move some of his people into your land so that you're surrounded. The, the people that are left behind are just surrounded by Babylonians and the people that got taken out are surrounded by Babylonian culture. It's brilliant. And you can read all about it in the book of Daniel. Everything that happens in the book of Daniel is just the, the story of a kid named Daniel, see if you're paying attention, good job. It's a story of a kid named Daniel, and there's Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. And all of that happens in the 70-year time period when the people of God had been removed from Israel, removed from their land, and living in exile 3,000 miles away in Babylon. Now, 48 years after Jerusalem falls, as empires do, uh, they rise and they fall. A new empire is sweeping the world. It's the Persian Empire. And the Persians take over Babylon. And so King Nebuchadnezzar is no longer the king. Now there's a new king. His name is Cyrus. And Cyrus is really friendly to all these Hebrew people that have been transplanted 48 years ago into Babylon. And so he kind of develops this relationship. And one of the relationships he develops as the king is with this guy named um, Ezra who's a priest and a scribe. And he allows Ezra to go recruit a few thousand people and take them from Babylon back to Jerusalem. Are you tracking with this? This makes sense? So, so, so Ezra has been a, a captive. Either he was born in captivity or he was stolen from his home and placed in captivity. But for 48 years, there's this group of people. And now all of a sudden, there's a new king and they are allowed to leave Babylon some of them, and go back to Jerusalem. And this is what Ezra does. He takes these people. Some cool things happen. You can read about it in Second Chronicles. and kind of really interesting the way God paves the way for them. But they end up in Jerusalem. And when they get there, there's, there's something that happens, and it's a blueprint for us. I want us to look at it. It's, it's fascinating to me as a, just a student of history. We've been quarantined for eight or nine weeks. Can you imagine being quarantined or exiled for 70 years? For 70 years, those people could not go home. They could not see their families that were left behind. They couldn't farm their land. Most importantly to them, they couldn't worship in the temple of God. 70 years. Like, that's, that's enough time with about a 34-year average lifespan, that's enough time for several generations to be born and die, not knowing where they're from, not being able to worship in their temple, not being able to know their family that was left behind. I mean, we've had a rough nine weeks. It's been kind of hard. But 70 years? Wow. Ezra gets the group back. It's 538 B.C. They have to build a new normal. They have to figure out what life looks like now because they've been living in Babylon for 48 years. Think about it. Some of the people in Ezra's group were born in Babylon. Some of the people that traveled with him from Babylon to Jerusalem had never seen Jerusalem. They'd only heard stories. They've never worshiped in the temple. They've only heard stories. So for them, this was going to be a brand new thing. They were going to have to figure out a new life, a new normal. For some of these people... They were there. They were children. They were teenagers when they were stolen 
from Jerusalem. They've lived in Babylon for almost 50 years now. And when they get back, everything's different. Most of the homes are abandoned or destroyed. There's no longer a protective wall around their capital city. And the temple that they used to worship God in is just rubble. There's nothing left of it but the foundation. Can you imagine? I mean, we've had to worry about toilet paper and internet speed. These people are having to adjust to a brand new way of life, either something brand new they've never experienced or something they treasured deeply is gone forever. And they have to build a new normal. And Ezra gives us, I think, a very, very simple blueprint. And you can push the fast forward button and overlay the blueprint on our lives today. You can see it happening. Ezra chapter 2, verse 70. If you want to look in the Bibles, you've got, I'm not going to put it on Bible vision. Here's what it says. So the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, all the temple servants, and some of the common people came back and settled in the villages near Jerusalem. And then this is the last statement of chapter 2, verse 70 that Ezra wrote. The rest of the people returned to their own homes throughout Israel. And the reason they did that, now think about it, okay? You have brand new people that have never lived in Israel before. You have people that used to live there when they were children. And there's all these ancestral homes and farmlands and, and shepherding fields. There's all these ancestral places not being occupied. And so these people, these thousands of people that came back from Babylon, they need a place to live. And so Ezra gives us this small but I think significant detail that they go back to their homes and they actually, the, the original language implies that they're not just going back home, they're going back home to rebuild. They go back home and most of the homes, it would be like if you left on vacation for 70 years, 48 years, and you got back and your home was just leveled. You, the first thing you would do is you would, like, you go home, right? You would start sifting through all this stuff. You would start looking for family pictures and looking for the important documents. They didn't have those things, but they had these ancestral homes, and so they would begin to rebuild them so they had a place to live. It was a focus. It was a time for them to focus on family. Think about everything that happens in Scripture. From the beginning to the end, it all takes place in the context of family. Family is very, very important to God. You know why? Because he invented it. He asks us to understand him and relate to him with a family word, father. And so the first thing these people do when they get back is they go home and they start building. They're not just building homes, though. They're not just repairing homes. They're preparing their families. It's a time to invest in family. It was a time to protect family. It was a time to make sure the family had everything they needed. It was a time to prepare that family for the next phase of the new normal. First step in the blueprint, prepare your family. Ezra chapter 3. When the seventh month came, 
That's the month of Tishri. All the Israelites had settled in their towns, and the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Okay, so a few months have passed. They've built back their homes. They've invested in family. Now they've got cows and livestock, and the farms are growing, and the family's getting stronger. And at a point in the seventh month, they decide, okay, it's time for phase two. We're going to get together. And so they all get together, and the scripture says they gathered as one in Jerusalem. And then this guy named Joshua, son of Josadak, this is not the same Joshua in the Old Testament, this is a new guy. Joshua, who was a priest, and his fellow priests, some other guys, and their associates, here's what they do. Don't miss this. They all gathered as one. These four priests, they gather together, and they rebuild the altar of God. In other words, they all meet in Jerusalem. They walk up to the place where the temple used to be. The only thing left there now is a foundation and rubble. And Ezra tells us, the first thing we did after we gathered our families together was we met where the temple used to be and these priests rebuilt the altar of God. We rebuilt the altar of God to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Check this out. Despite their fear of the people around them, they built the, the altar on its foundation and they sacrificed burnt offerings to the Lord, both morning and night. And then, in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the festival of tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. And after that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred festivals of the Lord, as well as those brought as free will offerings to God. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord throughout the, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. Step one, you go back and you prepare your family you invest in family. Step two, you rebuild the altar of God. This is what they did. They rebuilt the altar. They started making sacrifices. They started celebrating these feasts that were prescribed by God, and they began to worship God. Step two is invest in, or step one is invest in family. Step two, worship God. Isn't that simple? So, so the next time you're faced with a new normal, the next time there's some event or crisis or change in your life that you have to adjust to, I hope you'll remember Ezra, who very simply just said, hey, listen, when that happens, just take a few moments, weeks, months, we've had nine to focus on family. Like families have been together for the last nine weeks in our country, maybe more, at least in my lifetime than I've ever seen. You have had opportunity in the last nine months to seriously invest in family, to protect, to provide, to encourage, to build up, to prepare family for what's next. Step two, they worshiped. They worshiped. I want to ask our band, our, our worship band, if they would come back on stage because they're going to lead us in some more songs. And I just want to talk to you a little bit about what they did other than 
kill a bunch of animals and sprinkle blood all over the altar, which is basically what this passage is about. There were other things involved in celebration and in worship at the altar of God. Um, they worshiped God in that moment because worship always gives you something permanent to hold on to. And in a world that changes hourly, I am grateful for a God I can hold on to who never changes. Worship gets us there. When we worship, we get to somehow supernaturally with our spirit tap into eternity. God said he planted in us. And when we worship, we tap into that eternity, that eternal nature that God gave us that's created in his image. When we worship, we center our mind and our spirit on our creator, the thing, the person, the God we worship. When we worship, we are reminded that there is a big, big story being written, and it's bigger than my problems, it's bigger than my issues, it's bigger than my struggle. God is writing a bigger story, and we get to be a part of it. When we worship, we get to be drawn to the very heart of our Savior. So, when you're forced to, to build a new normal, when you're forced to adjust your life, to change your life, I just want you to start at home. That's the, that's the blueprint. That's what Ezra teaches us, that when you have to change, man, just huddle up as a family. Just circle up and let's, let's lift each other up and pray for each other and prepare, protect each other because there's something else coming. We're not always going to be huddled up. There's a phase two coming and we need to be prepared for, uh, for that. Church, that's us. That's where we've been for nine weeks. Don't you think God has something better for us on the other side of this? Anybody? Does anybody think that God has something better for us on the other side of this? then we need to prepare our families for that. You start at home. It all starts at home. Revival starts at home. Dads, grandpas, great-grandpas, it starts with you going home and leading your family to serve God, to love God, to honor God, to worship God. Revival starts at home. You've had nine weeks to prepare and I know God is going to bring something good out of all of this you start at home and when you're forced to build a new normal once you've prepared home you make worship a priority not an afterthought not an extra thing a priority the timing of the building of the altar of God cannot be overlooked the scriptures tell us, Ezra tells us, we waited until the seventh month, the first day of the seventh month of the year to rebuild that temple. Here's why. As a Hebrew, the first day of the seventh month began a, a feast, a celebration, a party called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And the idea was that the Hebrew people were supposed to look forward 
during this feast. They were supposed to um, just imagine with their mind and with their spirit that one day God would tabernacle with them. It literally means that they would be looking forward to one day God would actually live with them. And they would build a tent, a tabernacle, a booth in their front yard on the top of their house. They would build a tabernacle to remind themselves that one day we won't have to sacrifice animals to make God happy because God will live with us. And then a few hundred years later, guess what? That's exactly what happened. God left heaven and became a man and he lived as one of us. And then he died. But he didn't stay dead. And then he went up to heaven and he said, when I leave, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to be with you forever. We live in the days that those people were looking forward to. We live in the days when God dwells with us yes. here now. Yeah. And if that's not something to celebrate when our government says you can't, I don't know what is. What other reason do we need to celebrate other than God is here with us, dwelling with us, living in us. He's here. And he has something great prepared for us. And I want to read you a song that Ezra wrote. We think it was Ezra. We're not sure. We know it was written around this same time. That first day of the seventh month of T3 was there about to celebrate God being with them. When the Lord brought his people back, the captives, back to Zion, we were like men who had a dream. Our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, Ooh, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes to us, O Lord, like streams in the desert. Those who sow in tears will reap songs of joy. He who goes out weeping, carrying seeds to sow, will return with songs of joy, for God is with us. And then one song traditionally sung during the Feast of Tabernacles. Check this out. King David wrote this. King David said, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to God all the earth. Sing to the Lord and praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations his marvelous deeds among all people. For great is the Lord and most worthy to be praised. For he is to be feared above all others. For the God of the nations, for all the gods of the nations are idols, but our Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory 
are in his presence. Give to the Lord, O families of nations. Give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord glory that is due his name. And bring an offering and come into his house and worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, our God reigns. The world is firmly established and it cannot be moved and he will judge the people with equity. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth's let the earth be glad, let the sea resound, and all that is in it, let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy. They will sing before the Lord because he is with us. Would you stand with me? Would you pray with me? And then would you sing like the trees of the field, like the grains of the pastures that praise God. They don't have any other choice but just to worship and praise God. I plan to sing as a man today whose freedom to worship can be taken away in a moment. Don't you kid yourself, it could be. I plan to sing and worship today as a man who knows 100% that God is with me, that God is here and that he loves us so much. He sent his son to die for us and then to live for us and then to dwell with us forever. Lord God, thank you for the words that you gave Ezra. Thank you for the words that you gave David. Thank you for the words that you gave the men and women who wrote the, the words of the songs we're about to sing. Lord God, may we never take for granted the freedom that we have to worship you. Forgive us when we've done that, when we just assume that we can wake up in a world where we're free to worship you. Lord God, all those men and women who gave their lives for our freedom, don't let that go in vain. May we worship today as grateful people, people who love you and are grateful for those who have died to give us freedom, but more important than that, we're grateful for a God who left heaven to be one of us, to die for us, and to be with us forever. May West Main sing your praises. May joy just flow from our hearts and from our mouths. You are the great God, and you are worthy to be praised. We love you. We thank you for this opportunity in Jesus' name.